episode 104, The Upside and the Barriers to Getting Pharmacists in the Loop. Today, I speak with Jerry Farney, Pharmacy Informatics Consultant. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Jerry Farney is a pharmacy informatics consultant who knows what it takes to insert pharmacists into the continuum of care. We talk today about how pharmacists can help improve patient outcomes, but also about the gaps that currently exist which hinder this vision. Foreshadowing. It's a technology and interoperability fandango, as well as, in a broad stroke, the mindset of pharmacists themselves. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Jerry. Hey, Stacy, how you doing? Nice to be here. Let's talk about pharmacy informatics consulting, which is your gig. You got it. These days, I'm going to make the understatement of the year, people are starting to realize that pharmacists may just be helpful in achieving value-based care or some of these ACA-driven goals. What do you have to say about that? I think the insurance reform has given us the opportunity to do a better job with medications and alternative therapies. And I think there's a real opportunity now for pharmacists to get involved in not only helping treat diseases with medications, but also prevention and wellness, emphasizing that pharmacists can potentially drive down readmission rates and, and just have a greater impact on patients' overall health. And I think at times we're such a kind of a, a reactive profession in general. I think it requires something like ACA to help us understand what we can do and help drive the process. And I, I really think that's where we're at right now. I think we'll see pharmacists being more on the provider side and less tied to medications, uh, directly physically tied to medications as we move forward. When you say that pharmacists tend to be reactive, this is something that you had mentioned in an earlier conversation. What do you mean by that? And I know another thing that you had mentioned is that pharmacists, they tend to think clinically and a little less operationally. And I'm sure this is all kind of one package. Yeah. So, you know, we're a little introverted as a profession and we tend not to do anything unless somebody tells us we have to. If you look at the practice model in pharmacy, I've been practicing now for about two decades, exactly 20 years now, and the practice model is virtually unchanged in that time. Does that mean the practice model is perfect? No, I mean, not, absolutely not. Unfortunately, we don't do anything to progressively drive our own model. A lot of times we change the model of our practice to fit whatever's required. And that's what I mean by that we're, we're reactive and not proactive. I don't think a lot of people talk about what we should be doing and how we should be doing it, but you see relatively few organizations and healthcare systems actually doing it. And what I mean by pharmacists think more clinically than operationally is historically pharmacists have been tied physically to medications. Ultimately, our responsibility is to ensure that patients have their medications in the most safe, economically slash fiscally responsible way possible. And to do that, we have to make the operations as efficient as possible. Unfortunately, pharmacists want to be more clinical. So they want to be engaged with the patient. They want to be engaged with other healthcare providers, but they don't want to deal with the operational aspect. And so we tend to forget that in order for pharmacists to 
get out of the pharmacy and be engaged with patients and other healthcare professionals. We have to do something to improve our operational efficiency so that we can walk away from it. And so that's what I mean. We want to do B before we do A. We tend to think only the clinical aspects and we kind of forget that we have to improve the operational aspects first. The old opportunity costs. If you're spending time counting pills, then you can't be spending that exact same time counseling patients or getting engaged in higher or more provider-oriented care. Correct. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. And to do that, though, we have to get we have to find other ways to quote unquote count pills. We have to be more efficient at it. We have to find ways to promote other healthcare providers, such as pharmacy technicians, so that we can then practice at the top of our license. You hear that a lot. You had mentioned the term practice model a couple of times. What are you referring to when you say practice model? Is it the economic model? Is it just what goes on day to day, hour by hour? Or, or is it more than that or less than that? So it's both, right? So sort of the financial model, the economic model is outpatient. So retail pharmacy, ambulatory care pharmacy, they're very concerned with getting paid for their services. So the model we currently use now is basically we get paid to push a pill out the door. Unfortunately, we don't get paid for those cognitive services. So that's one model. And then on the inpatient model, it's a very clinically focused non-distribution model. And we're very focused on as I mentioned previously, everybody wants to do the clinical thing and nobody wants to do the distribution thing. And now that healthcare organizations are becoming more integrated, you're seeing more and more hospitals become large entities. It's no longer just the 200-bed hospitals servicing one area. It's five 200-bed hospitals that are now a single entity. And those entities are basically in silos. And that practice model is it's just not going to work moving forward. It's going to have to be more integrated Pharmacists are going to have to see it as a continuum of care from the outpatient all the way through inpatient and then completely back around. Now you just did say that pharmacists are introverted. Yeah, we are a little introverted by nature. So, of course, the dominant healthcare professional in a hospital is going to be nurses simply because there's just a, a huge number of them. And then the physicians, because the physician actually drive the patient care and the patient practice. And so that's the current hospital model. And then you have the pharmacist. So when you look at the structure of a hospital, even when you get to the VP level and the very high level administration, you very rarely see a pharmacist in any of those roles. You see physicians in those roles and you certainly see a lot of nurses in those roles, but you almost never see a pharmacist. And so when you go into a hospital and you meet with the upper level administration, kind of that VP level, you almost never find a pharmacist. And so I find that I'm not on the same page with them in terms of my language, right? So I'm using pharmacy lingo and you're speaking to physicians and nurses and you're not always talking about the same thing in the same way. And so that's what I mean by we're introverted. We don't get out of the pharmacy as much as we should and look at other areas of practice where we can impact it directly. You look at pharmacists, they can not only drive healthcare in terms of just the pharmacy, but I think we have a unique perspective in terms of we have to deal with physicians, we have to deal with nurses and respiratory therapists, and we also have to deal with administration and operational issues. And so I think we have a lot to offer and I think we can bring a lot of things to the table, but we just don't do it. I could also see that as the pharmacies become integrated more and more into IDNs, that ability to represent, if you will, becomes even more and more important. Because how can you improve operationally, for example, if no one in the larger organization seems to understand that that's a need? So you get this kind of misalignment or maybe expectations which can't be filled because nobody's sort of on the same page. 
No, I mean, and that's that's it. You hit it right on the head. We, we, we really have to find a way to kind of integrate ourselves into some of the decision-making process. I think it's going to be our approach moving forward. For example, we like to talk a lot about money saved for clinical services. The unfortunate thing about that is clinical services are very soft dollars. When an administrator gets to the end of the year and they look at the bottom line and a hospital says, we saved you X dollars in clinical services and there's nothing on the bottom line, it doesn't really hit home for them. But if you can show a cost savings in a hard dollar value, let's say inventory reduction or reduced readmissions for something you did opening a pharmacy-driven clinic or something, then I think we have a great opportunity to introduce ourselves into some more of the roles inside of a hospital or even in, inside of an inventory care setting or long-term care setting or patient-centered home or whatever that is. But I think we have to figure out a way to do that. Do you have any examples? So you had just mentioned reduce readmissions or reduce the cost of inventory. Reducing readmissions, there's there's a lot of good data out there. There's several studies to show that a pharmacist working in certain roles in an outpatient setting, managing certain types of chronic disease states, and you know, a couple, maybe diabetes or asthma in children, or possibly doing medication therapy management with uh, pediatric transplant patients, those have been shown to reduce readmission rates because the pharmacist is showing the patients how to take better care of themselves, how to better adhere to their medications, how to make sure that they're monitoring drug levels and things like that. So that's one way that we can do it. And in terms of reducing inventory and showing hard dollar savings as tied to to drug, actual drug spend, automation is a great way to do that because it allows you to track inventory much more efficiently. You have automated systems that use RFID technology and barcode scanning technology and you have inventory software that allows you to provide the data and the analytics to do that. Otherwise, you're doing it the old-fashioned way where somebody's walking the shelves and putting a check mark on a piece of paper. And then at the end of the year, they do inventory and they say, we're up a million dollars or we're down $300,000, but you really don't know how you got there. By introducing automation and some technology into that, I think you have a much better opportunity to show how you got there, especially now with some of the new specialty drugs. Things are going to get very, very complicated in terms of how those specialty drugs are used and how some of the new medications that are coming out are used, the biosimilars, for example, and things like that. I think we have a good opportunity to actually dig in, do some better analytics, show some more definitive data. That's interesting. And I'd like to also circle back to the first thing that you said, which was MTM for, for example, pediatric asthma patients or, or diabetics. What does that look like, actually? So say that you're a pharmacist, you're in an IDN, and you have the opportunity to do MTM for one of these two disease states. What happens? What's the kind of the, the story there about how that goes down? Everybody looks at MTM, and that's just one tiny piece of the puzzle. So medication therapy management actually takes place outpatient and inpatient. But you have other things that help you kind of create that big circle from beginning to end. So in a medication therapy management kind of scenario, let's say a pharmacist in an ambulatory care setting would meet with a patient and they would take a look at their medications and they would do very simple things like they would match up their medications to their disease states. They would make sure that there's obviously no duplicate medications that shouldn't be there. They would make sure that there's no significant drug-drug interactions happening or no significant drug-disease states interacting there. They would also do any kind of drug monitoring that was required, any kind of surveillance. Let's say something required a drug level and there was no recent drug level. The pharmacist would order those levels under the procedure or the processes of a hospital and make sure that everything's exactly the way it should be. And in theory, 
let's say the, the pharmacist helps the patient adhere to the medications better. Let's say in an asthma situation, it might actually reduce the number of times they have to be seen in an ED for asthma exacerbation. Or let's say that the pharmacist improves adherence to diabetes drug therapy. That means that the patient will potentially have better control of their diabetes, which means in the long run that that patient would have fewer admissions and possibly fewer complications or the, the complications would have a, a much later onset. And so I think that's mostly what the medication therapy management would look like from a pharmacist perspective. It's typically attached to, like you said, an IDN or a large healthcare organization, and it usually takes place in an outpatient setting. Let me ask you a question about that because I hear MTM and I think to myself, hmm, CMS is paying for that. And I don't often think about pediatric asthma patients being on Medicare. I mean, maybe Medicaid. Right. Is it mostly risk-bearing IDNs that are paying for MTM for pediatric patients? Or, or where's the compensation coming from? So that's one of the big problems. One of the big problems is in this model, there's no direct compensation for these cognitive services. And so, yeah, you're right. So basically by lowering the risk or mitigating the risk, taking on the responsibility in IDN or let's say a self-insured accountable care organization, right, by improving adherence in the pediatric patient, potentially reducing the number of ER or ED visits, they're actually saving themselves some money in the long run. And that's the best way to look at this. I know there's one organization that I visited in the last year where they have started giving away medications like this to the patients on discharge. And the reason behind that was it saves them money in the long run. So for example, if they hand the patient their two inhalers as they walk out the door for free, then they know that the patient is more likely to use them and the patient is less likely to be admitted for an exacerbation. To them, that makes sense, handing them a couple hundred dollars worth of inhalers to prevent a $3,000 ED visit. And do you see employers getting in on this game? Absolutely. I, I think if they're smart, they will, especially if they're self-insured. It makes a lot of sense to do that. Yeah, it's the old Asheville model, I guess. We're back to that. Yep. You had used a term the last time that we spoke that I'd never heard before, but it appeals to me. Meds to beds. What is that? And where'd that come from? Well, I, I'm not sure where the phrase came from. As a pharmacist, we've been talking about this concept for several years, but a meds to bed is simply this. You have a patient that has, let's say, a chronic disease state and they have a complicated medication regimen. Is The pharmacy will fill their medications, deliver their medications to the bedside, and give them any consultation that is needed before they walk out the door. And that comes back to that whole idea making sure that the patient has 50 bucks worth of medication before they walk out the door so they don't have to inconvenience themselves to go get it filled. But you make sure that their medications are correct. You make sure that they're accurate. You make sure that the patient understands it. And you make sure that they have everything they need to be successful from a medication perspective. So that's what a meds to bed program is. I know a few hospitals that use it here in, in uh, where I live. I live in Fresno. I know there's uh, one large hospital here in town that actually does a meds to beds program. And so they fill the medications before the patient's discharge. They deliver them to the bedside. They give the consultation, ask any questions that uh, the patient has. And and uh, and away they go. And it, it to me, it's a very successful. It's part of that entire circle, right? So you have the MTM and the outpatient side. You have the meds to beds. Then you have all the medication reconciliation that goes on. So that in theory, in your healthcare organization, this patient, they always have the meds they need. They're always accurate. And you're always in touch with the healthcare providers that are taking care of the patient. So it makes a lot of sense. How that would look then is patients 
in the bed at the hospital. Pharmacist comes upstairs, visits them, hands them meds to make sure that they have them after discharge and that they know how to use them. Help me understand this, because one of the things I've been reading lately is what happens when a patient is discharged. And this goes back to formularies. In the hospital, the hospital is using a, a formulary and the patient has, I don't know, some heart failure med or some high blood pressure med that they're on. While they're inpatient in the hospital, that might get changed because the hospital has a a formulary or a contract with a different manufacturer. So they get prescribed something. Then they are discharged from the hospital, and it turns out that the patient's med D plan or insurance plan doesn't cover that same med. So patient goes into the hospital taking a certain set of medications. While they're inpatient, that might get changed. And then when they are discharged, it might get changed again. I mean, obviously, this is a bit of a kerfuffle. <laughs> do you have any comments on that? And, and, how can, and how can pharmacists get in there and do something? Well, first of all, it happens all the time. And, what, and the way it happens is exactly how you describe. A patient comes in and let's say they're on a, a hypertension med, an ACE inhibitor, for example, very common. You see those come, there's so many different varieties of ACE inhibitors and a hospital will have one or two, sometimes three on a formulary. The patient comes in the door, they get an automatic therapeutic substitution. And then they, uh, they go to be discharged, and it's possible that that medication's not covered on their insurance, although sometimes it, it is covered and you just change the patient over, but sometimes you have to change them back. But that's part of this process. That's part of the MTM. That's part of the meds to bed, and that's part of the whole discharge medication reconciliation process. During admission, you reconcile the patient's meds, meaning everything is changed over that needs to be. While they're in the hospital, they use those medications. And when they go to get discharged, the pharmacist handles that up front in the meds to beds program. For example, when they fill the medications, if they run that medication through the patient's outpatient insurance or uh, insurance provider, then they will know that the medication is not covered. They will either switch it back or they'll get some type of prior authorization and go ahead and leave the patient on the med. And then the patient will have their correct and appropriate medication as they move forward, and they'll be able to refill those medications during their outpatient care. So that's where a pharmacist comes in. A pharmacist comes in to reconcile the medications at the beginning and the end of the process. And in the outpatient arena, as the patient's being discharged, the pharmacy and the pharmacist works with the insurance provider and the physician to make sure that they're on the appropriate medication as they walk out the door. So pharmacists involved, it can be involved and should be involved in that entire process. Now, with that said, some of these things are now being handled by pharmacy technicians. The literature is pretty good supplying us with information, for example, on the med rec side and the meds to bed. This is where things like telepharmacy and telemedicine come into play. But you're seeing all kinds of different, interesting new models. We really don't know exactly how it's going to pan out. We're going to have to wait and see. You had just mentioned that pharmacists can help after discharge. Do you see a lot of IDNs whose pharmacists are going out and actually visiting patients after discharge? Or is it a set of pharmacists that are sort of working together? So an ambulatory pharmacist or a community pharmacist will pick up a patient who has recently been discharged and do that reconciliation for them. Yeah, it's a gap. There's a gap here to be sure. For example, in a large IDN where you have ambulatory care clinics and you have ambulatory care pharmacies, 
in patient-centered home type environments. You see that happening. I don't see it a lot. I see it every once in a while. But if the patient goes outside of the system and let's say goes to a, a chain drugstore, you will lose, typically lose that MTM and that med reconciliation because it just, it doesn't happen. So inside of the large IDNs where they control everything, you see it happening and it's a smart way to do it. Unfortunately, there's still large gaps and large holes in this process, especially when a patient goes to, let's say, a large chain that is not associated with the healthcare system. Although with that said, there are some large chains that are now making their way, finding their way into these large IDNs and they're and becoming integrated with those. So you'll see it. It'll, it'll improve as we move forward. Right now, it's still a little disjointed and there's still some gaps and some holes. So you just said telepharmacy. Is that a thing? Yeah. It is a thing. So it's it's been around for a long time, although it's not very popular, but telemedicine and telepharmacy is gaining ground for instances like this. Let's say you have a meds to bed program and let's say a technician is handling the medication delivery. They go up to the floor. The patient's had all the medications before. The patient doesn't have any questions, doesn't need to talk to the pharmacist. The technician delivers the medications and they go about their merry way. Well, let's say the patient has a question. There's actually, they can dial up a pharmacist either on their screen in the room or using a tablet and ask the pharmacist any questions that they have. And that applies on an outpatient scenario as well, where a patient can get on their computer and they can pop into a telepharmacy area that an insurance company has or an IDN has. And if they need to speak to a pharmacist, they can. They have that, that ability to do that. And you see it a little more now than you used to, although it's still very uncommon. You're seeing more and more of it as telehealth grows, as you see more and more insurance companies and large IDNs using physicians this way. So as it grows, as the popularity grows, and as people start accepting it more mainstream, I think you're going to see more and more telepharmacy. The big problem, of course, is reimbursement. Even physicians are struggling to figure out how to get reimbursed for these services because they're not our traditional model, right? And we, we fear change. And so this is causing some problems with insurance companies about how to pay for these type of interactions. If a pharmacist does have the opportunity to integrate more fully into the continuum of care, I know that one of the things which is often mentioned is that pharmacists often don't have access to EHR systems, the medical EHR systems. What advice do you have for pharmacists that are trying to become more integrated and insert themselves into the patient clinical care, but yet they don't have the information. There is very little integration between, let's say, EHR vendors and outside ambulatory care pharmacies, chain pharmacies. And it's because these are for profit in terms of like EHR vendors and let's say retail chain pharmacies. These are for-profit organizations. They don't want to share information. They don't want to design application user interfaces to share information between vendors. And it, it's a major problem. So in the hospital world, we have basically three large EHR vendors that are kind of taking up most of the market. And historically, they have been very difficult to work with to get information out of their systems outside of the healthcare organization or the IDN, uh, if you will. So right now we're kind of stuck. I would I would tell pharmacists in general that they have to hammer on any of the organizations to push the EHR vendors to get involved. And unfortunately, I think we're going to have to have here here I'm going to say it. We're going to have to have some more rules and regulations around this. I think we may have to even have insurance companies insist 
that EHR vendors and healthcare organizations share information if they want to get paid, for example. Or we may have to have it at this tied to something like the Affordable Care Act or, or some other new regulatory body that comes in that says you're going to have to be willing to, to share information. Right now, pharmacists are stuck. There's not a whole lot they can do about it besides work with a hospital, let's say, in their local area to help provide that information. I know I go into some hospitals now and the Department of Pharmacy has agreements with certain pharmacies in the area that they will share information, although it's not the best way to share information. Sometimes they will they will transmit the information. Sometimes they'll give the information verbally, but it's it's got a long way to go. We're starting to see in the kind of the, the informatics area, the automation, the technology area, we're starting to see some startups and some people popping up in the area that are going to try to solve this problem. Although I don't know how they can solve it from their end, but they're looking at ways to pull in and integrate this information with different kinds of data models and different kinds of search engines and things like that. But it's going to be tough until the actual companies that deal with the data, such as the electronic health record companies, until they're forced to give up that information to anybody and everybody, it's going to be tough. What does a pharmacy informatics consultant such as yourself do? Who hires you and what questions do you get asked to answer? Pharmacy informatics is a very broad term. It's never been well-defined. It can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. When I first got into this, I actually thought I was going to be uh, doing work for hospitals, answering a lot of the questions that you and I have talked about here today, integration, workflow, how can I better optimize my automation and technology to get my pharmacist up on the floor to do things like the meds to bed and the, and the medication therapy management. But as it turns out, I actually get hired almost exclusively by companies that work in the pharmacy automation area, help them develop products. They hire me to look at their products, look at the functionality, see if they're kind of on target or if they're off target and answer the questions like you and I have been talking about today. This is actually what companies hire me to do is to sit me down and, and ask me these type of questions and how to solve these problems with their products. Although it sounds like the change or transformation would be accelerated if your original idea were actually true. <laughs> In other words, you right. would get hired by IDNs to help integrate pharmacists. Yeah. Well, remember I told you we're we're very reactive. We're not proactive. A proactive approach would be to hire somebody to come in and, and help them make these changes. It doesn't have to be me. It could be anybody. That would be a very proactive uh, approach. But unfortunately, it, it just doesn't happen as often as you would think. And where can someone find out more information about the services that you provide and Jerry Farney Consulting, should they be interested? JerryFarney.com is my website. I can also be reached via email at Jerry at JerryFarney.com. I'm on Twitter and my handle is at JFarney. And then obviously LinkedIn. You can find my LinkedIn profile there. And feel free to call me if you want. My number is 559-838-6014. If I can't answer your call, I'll return it as soon as I can. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.